Hello and welcome to Stranger Stopping Strangers, podcast number 28. Thank you so much for tuning in. A uh, big welcome back to anybody who's returning and thanks for stopping in to anybody who's new this week. Well, this week's podcast is supersized. Um, I got an opportunity to have a conversation with Jesse Jarno, who is the author of Heads, a biography of psychedelic America, as well as a journalist for some just really amazing publications. Uh, I attached his website to the page, so please check it out. And we just had so much fun talking. We talk about you know, the, the background of Psychedelic America, how the Grateful Dead is, is woven into the stories, um, up through to music today. So lots of fun, some real rare and cool music picks that he had that are woven within the podcast. So excited for everybody to, to hear those selections. And uh, finally, this is the first podcast with the new computer. So the sound sounds quite a bit better. So I'm very pleased with that. I hope you enjoy as well. So, as always, feel free to drop a line, send a message, www.strangerstoppingstrangers.com. And thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week. Jesse, thank you so much for joining Stranger Stopping Strangers. Cool. My pleasure, Stacey. Nice oh, to be here. I'm so excited to be talking to you because, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna ask some questions, but, I mean, you, you are just, you have so much information. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. It's, 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 it's a real pleasure to talk to you. So Awesome. Thank you very, very much. Uh, well, the first thing I guess I want to bring up is, I mean, you've been writing and have written for, you know, amazing publications, Rolling Stones and Pitchfork and Relics and on and on. But you recently published a book. And uh, I want to tell the listeners a little bit about that and then maybe go back to kind of how you got, you know, interested in psychedelia and, you know, which, of course, brings us to the Grateful Dead, which is the, you know, the basis of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, so I, I I wrote a book called uh, Heads, a biography of psychedelic America, which uh, came out in early 2016, and I really wanted to write a cultural history of how the Grateful Dead had impacted the the history of the United States, and kind of pulling that story back, kind of you know sort of pulling the camera back to get to sort of make it as as big as possible. I just sort of kept coming back to the to the, the impact of, of psychedelics and the way that that's completely entwined with the dead story and sort of the, the way that they have sort of manifested their culture in the United States over the last, the last half century. Those, just those two stories are so inseparable, um, sort of the, the arrival of the Grateful Dead and the arrival of, of LSD in a widespread way in the United States. And they they just stayed entwined over you know the, the 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 thirty years that the dead were around, and now that you know the the twenty years that 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 Garcia's been gone, those narratives just sort of keep winding around each other in these really unexpected, fascinating ways that that stretch from you know art and music and cultural things, but also into science and technology and into the law and into spirituality, and it's. 
just this big, you know, kind of ball of narrative that I wanted to kind of, you know, un- unspool and, and sort of lay out and sort of connect all these points and, and see how they flowed together in this, in this bigger way. Cause it was, it was a story that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm younger. I, you know, I only caught a couple of dead shows at the end. So it was sort of this, this story that, that was, um, Mysterious kind of, to you, something that you wanted to, uh, to to unveil and learn more about for for your yeah. Well, it was very it was it was sort of in one way like obvious to me when I discovered all of this stuff as a teenager that that you know that all these connections existed, but because you know because acid is illegal, a lot of the the truth of the stories really end up getting buried and. I've spent, you know, a couple of basically a couple of decades at this point trying to sort of figure out what what actually what happened. Well, in and, your story, and, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it it begins. I mean, with you know, it, it begins back in uh, the, the turn of the nineteenth century. You know, the, the early musings with mescaline and you know Aldo Huxley and and uh, I mean, you you really in the beginning go back to you know things that that predate. And and all the way up to to current times and what's going on. I mean, it, it's really. I mean, it's such a fascinating story with the different characters and people. You know, some that we know. You know, Ken Kesey or Timothy Leary, and and a lot of characters we got introduced to that you uncovered that you know the the regular old you know the regular old Joe like me had never heard of. You know, and they were so instrumental in in all of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and it was kind of those sort of the characters that most people don't know and that, you know, when I started this book, mostly I didn't really know. Um, and to me, it's those characters that really illustrate the story. And I was trying to like kind of find different chunks of the narrative, you know, try, you know, try to talk to somebody who is involved in the actual chemistry and manufacture of LSD and, and talk to people who are involved in, you know, on the street level with distribution, but also, you know, sort of artists and writers and musicians and people who are sort of connected to that world and in both um, sort of uh, sort of intangible ways, kind of the ways they were influenced by it, but also in this very, this real concrete way in that it created this economic system that, that allowed people to, to support themselves in this kind of underground fashion. Um, and sort of, yeah, like I said, kind of drawing the connections between those points and also drawing the connections, you know, um, psychedelics have, obviously existed for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And, and, you know, I kind of delve a little bit into kind of the pre, um, modern history of, of psychedelics sort of, you know, na- you know, Native American peyote use and mushrooms in Mexico and, and, you know, ayahuasca in South America and kind of these narratives, you know, all sort of feed into this sort of, you know, the, the contemporary American version, which, sort of had its start almost as like a sort of a, a clean break or kind of like a blank slate in kind of these years after World, World War II, where, you know, kind of these young Americans were discovering all these psychedelic traditions, but also kind of starting from scratch and um, creating creating new ones. And in some ways there was, you know, sort of cultural appropriation going on and, and, and kind of this willful forgetting of, of what happened before. 
which can be <laughs> which, which is so can, American, right? Which is extreme. <laughs> which oh, is oh, so American. I'm the city, and then it turns into distribution and commerce, and then the government gets involved, and then the government denies that they're involved. And then, yeah, you know, like they you you start off with you know again ayahuasca in South America, where it's like shamans and part of like the religion and the culture, and then America turns it into you know only what America can do, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but, you know, but that's, you know, but that's also what makes the story what it is and why I think LSD and not, you know, necessarily mushrooms or ayahuasca or peyote was really the central psychedelic that uh, Americans latched onto because it was invented, you know, in the 20th century and didn't have, you know, millennia of tradition behind it. It was right. it, it really was something that they could sort of project onto um, and I think that's that that plays a huge role in, in kind of what happened after that and, and sort of how the dead developed and how, you know, all these other kind of American psychedelic religious practices developed as well without, you know, sort of without reference to what came before. No, absolutely. And I mean, and it is like it's so it's interesting because I feel like there's part of like the America, there's a part of America who thinks like, you know, those damn hippies. And but the the deadheads like, you know, really getting to know, you know, a deeper dive into the deadhead community. And I mean, even just to look at, you know, the graphics and the pictures, I mean, it really is an American institution. I mean, there, you know, really, when you think about the, you know, the patriotism and the identification as, you know, as with our country and, and the music and I mean it's um for those who who really you know who really wrap their mind around it it's a, it's a very patriotic um I don't know culture to me yeah I mean it, it is in in a lot of ways and I think that's really part of you know that's really connected to the the, the dead thing specifically because I do think psychedelics one of one of the things they do or or can do it's certainly there's certainly no universal is sort of create this um sort of this you know it's counterculture yeah well it's it's this literal countercultural sense but also that there's this feeling that you're a citizen of the universe that you're not that you're not connected by these boundaries that you're connected to to other people and other life forms by these by you know means that aren't you know, defined by governments or... or the higher or, spiritual levels. Yeah, or, or, yeah, something like that. Kind of like a, you know, sort of a, a, a deeper a deeper connection that goes beyond the, surf, the surface of the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, and, and writing the book was, was just, you know, was was an adventure. And kind of like, like I said, sort of learning learning about these characters and discovering these characters and, you know, like, like one storyline that I didn't really know anything about going into, but, but really managed to kind of di- dive into is this um, scene that was in uh, central park in the mid seventies um, who were, it was this group of people who were like really early New York graffiti writers. Um, and one of the very earliest influential New York graffiti writers, his tag was LSD ohm. And he was this, you know, this kid, Chad, from New York. And he, you know, he had been, um, as it turned out, as I discovered, uh, the first connection in in Central Park to the the people who were selling Orange Sunshine LSD, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And he kind of became this conduit between the East Coast and the West Coast where, you know, this acid was kind of flowing in from the West into Central Park into this, like, distribution network of, of teenagers. 
And he, uh, this guy, Chad, who became LSD Ohm, got out of the LSD business very, very quickly, but, but sort of people followed him and that connection stayed in Central Park for the next, basically the next couple of decades. And then Chad, sort of after these couple of years of, of, you know, working with the Brotherhood, decided that he was going to get into graffiti and that his mission was to sort of spread the word of his people. And he really considered his people to be, you know, the, the, the psychedelic world. And he was one of the first graffiti writers to really start taking it from people just sort of like writing their names or words on the wall to, you know, the letters kind of starting to get abstract and and surreal and kind of turning into this, you know, more articulated art form. And he absolutely credits, you know, sort of the presence of acid and the presence of the counterculture for kind of being that, you know, that transformative influence on on his work. And then by extension, sort of graffiti, graffiti as a whole, you know, yeah. if you think about him as an influential figure. And they were just, and, and this group in the park was, just remained this kind of like hub of countercultural activity all through the 70s and into the 80s and kind of even into the 90s where they're kind of connecting all these threads that you wouldn't even really necessarily associate with with the dead but are, you know, are, are kind of right there. You know, things like, um, you know, sort of skateboarding or I guess sure. ultimate ultimate Frisbee. I guess, yeah, no, I, I mean, guess people connect Frisbee with deadheads, but uh, yeah. yeah. It's like there's a full connection because, again, when you think about graffiti, the first thing that comes to my mind isn't deadheads, but, you know, as you as – you, as you talk, I can, you know, follow along the threads back to some roots. And, um, and that is, that is just really fucking cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the, the thing that with the park, the park guys in general and sort of, you know, acid dealers throughout, throughout all, throughout all of this from the sixties to now is that they were, you know, these guys were, were deadheads, but they were also kind of this connection point between all these other subcultures that were, kind of engaging with psychedelics. So they were sort of the connection point between, you know, early punk people at, at CBGBs who are, who are, who are doing acid and they're, you know, they've got sort of connections to kind of like, you know, the, the, the early hip hop scene and, and, and other things going on in New York, certainly like um, uh, the early, early gay discos in New York were extremely psychedelic. So there's all, you, you kind of, you kind of have this map where the dead are, you know, the dead and that psychedelic scene are at the center but it just spits off into all these all these different places that that are that are completely connected, but but kind of improbable, you know, when you start thinking about it. Yeah, no, I'm, I've got a visual in my mind. I've got like a tree visual that's starting <laughs> with a chat as the root in a central park, you know, and the branches going out, you know, into a a summer day of a tree with just you know again, all kinds <laughs> of unlikely leaves that you wouldn't expect, but all start yeah. at the same roots in the park. You know, right. is what's going on in my mind, and it's it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, and it and it you know it turned into you know at kind of at the other end of you know you know the tree or the leaves or however you want to push that metaphor, you get all these you know little corners like another one that I stumbled onto when I was writing the book is uh, Keith Haring, the the late great pop artist was a massive, massive deadhead and acid freak when he was a teenager in the 70s. And his first real art that he sold was a, was a dead bootleg shirt. It was a steal your face with uh, kind of his sort of distinct sort of squiggly lines kind of in the, the space behind the skull. And, you know, he went he sort of passed through the dead world and the psychedelic world and ends up in New York and becomes this really influential artist 
And whenever he was asked about sort of like, you know, where he, you know, where kind of the, these ideas come from, he would trace it back to this, like, he's like, oh, yeah, my, my second acid trip out in the fields when I was, you know, a teenager, I had my notebook and I was tripping and just started drawing in my notebook. And that was, you know, that was the basis for like every single thing I did that followed. Um, so it's, you know, it, it reaches into, you know, these these characters that are known around the world at this point. And he was, you know, he was just a he was just a random deadhead acid taker out in Pennsylvania. And right what happens expanded your mind and uh and then uh, expanded art and expanded art world you know just it goes it uh the ripple effect the the, the ripple in still water and uh and on exactly well in bringing up ripple makes me bring up music which <laughs> will bring me into a jerry garcia and um on the podcast typically yeah i mean there is, you know, no format to these podcasts. It's strangers stopping strangers just to shake their hand. I mean, it's just, it's so much fun for me to get to meet all different kinds of people from all walks of life, from, you know, the suit and tie deadheads to the couch touring teenagers to people like yourself who've just, you know, so involved in meeting so many different amazing people and stories. And, and the commonality is, is, you know, just this love for the music and the meaning and the meaningfulness it has to our lives Every day, you know, depending on if you saw 500 dead shows with Jerry or, you know, you're 18 and stumbled upon a couch tour and you're just digging the music. Um, so I like to mix in music. Um, so I asked you to select some songs. And so this is going to be a podcast where the songs are not shows you saw, <laughs> but really meaningful, you know, p pieces of music to you. So, um, so let's do a little music. So tell me a little bit about our first pick. The first pick... I had never heard before. It's phenomenal. It's going to be so cool for you guys to listen to. And this uh, this goes back to 1962. So tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so this is from a, a really recently discovered tape uh, by the Heart Valley Drifters, which was one of Jerry Garcia's bluegrass bands when he was when he was living in in the Palo Alto area um, after he got out of the army, but before he picked up an electric guitar. He was a, you know, he was a banjo player and a guitarist and a real folk music um, purist um, at that point. And this was his, uh, this is one of his early bands. It features Robert Hunter on bass and David Nelson, who went on to co-found the new riders, of the purple sage is in this band as well. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of tapes, really kind of a surprisingly large amount of tapes of, of Garcia's various um, bluegrass and old-timey projects fr from that era. But this is uh, his first known studio session, which was a, a radio session at Stanford University um, with with this band. So it's definitely the highest quality um, that uh, of the, the bluegrass stuff that exists. And it was discovered by a, a filmmaker named Brian Mixis, who also wrote the liner notes for it. He's a uh, and um, it's just an incredible document of, of where Garcia and Hunter and Nelson uh, were, were at at that point. And Jerry plays banjo on about half the tunes and guitar on about half the songs and sings lead on, on almost all of them, which is actually kind of um, sort of rare for, for that period of Garcia stuff. He's not usually uh, such a dominant lead vocalist. And uh, this is the last, I think it's the last track on the album. It's Sitting on Top of the World, which the Dead picked up and put in, in their repertoire when they when they went electric in, in 65 and 66. Um, but this is just a, um, 
a two-person version. I, I, I think Ken Frankel is playing the, the dobro, and I don't think Jerry is playing any instrument at all. I think he's just singing on this. And he's, he's kind of, on a, on a lot of this album, you know, you can tell that it's Jerry, but, you know, he clearly hasn't totally figured out how to, how to fully sing yet in that voice that we would all really it's identify. It's kind of shy. It's very, it's like, it's almost, it's, it's, um, I don't know if shy is the right word, but it's very um, innocent. Maybe yeah, totally. For. Yeah, not shy, but it's very innocent. I mean, I, I have to be honest, the first time I'd heard it, and um, it's very sweet and very innocent and very distinctively his voice, but yeah, to point, not really his style, but um, but really beautiful. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really like the, a little ditty, the, you know? It's, a, it's just a little piece of music. Yeah, it's the sound of him sort of discovering discovering his voice, literally, in that, in that sense. And, and that's you know, there a couple of the other tracks here highlight that as well. But that's that's something that, that I you know, is really important to me about about Garcia is his, his vocals as mu- and his singing as much as his guitar playing and his, his jamming and his songwriting. But his voice is something that, that I find to be really, really special and magical and, and to me this is kind of like the first historical moment where where that's happening. Well, let's listen to it, and I'm, I would bet that this is going to be the first time that we are introducing this to many of the listeners, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of anyone listening who hasn't had a chance to hear this. And yeah. uh, um, I'll add that this was uh, just officially released a few months ago on a, um, a CD called, is it Folk Time? I think, let me, let me make sure that's right. <laughs> yeah, Folk Time. I put a couple of notes. Heart Valley Drifters Folk Time, sitting yeah. on top of the world. Sessions from Stanford KZSU 1962, Jerry's first known studio. That's the notes. Cool. <laughs> That's, the yeah. That's the notes. This is a this is a red information, so um, <laughs> definitely worth looking at the whole thing. And it was on YouTube, so you know it's uh, yeah. readily available to find. So all right, well let's go into that, and then we're going to come back and uh, hear a little bit more. And uh, we have a few more um, cool songs. And usually I edit the songs and then do a companion guide. These songs are. Um, they're not long jams, so I'm going to play the whole songs, and then I'll still roll out the companion um, for people who just want to hear music, too. So, everybody enjoy. This is a pretty song called Sitting on Top of the World. Don't worry, 
sitting on top of the world and uh, I'm sure many of you are smiling out there as a and uh, racing to your computer to YouTube and listen to more of folk time <laughs> so uh, so I want to ask you Jesse tell me you know I want to hear a little bit about you you know I want to talk a little bit more about the books and your writings but you know about you and, and what um, you know your your family and, and, and inspired us. I want to know you know where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I grew up on Long Island, um, mainly, you know, I was born in the late 70s, so I grew up, growing up in the 80s and, and the early 90s, and my parents are both um, counterculturalists, I guess I would say. My dad's probably more of a head than my mom, but, um, you know, grew up with an amazing record collection in the house and and just two music, you know, music-loving parents, you know, playing playing stuff from it constantly. Um, that said, the dead weren't really in that, in that record collection. You know, it was pretty much every Beatles record and every Dylan record and every Stones record and a bunch of, there's some great free jazz in there and, and, and all kinds of things that I, you know, kept discovering, you know, well into my college years, like, oh my God, why do you have that record? Right. <laughs> um, but they had a copy of, uh, Skull and Roses in, in there. And I, you know, sometime probably in like... I guess for me it was like seventh or eighth grade, might have even been younger than that. There was kind of this wave of, of sort of jammier bands that were kind of coming coming into the world, um, you know, sort of you know Fish and and, and Blues Traveler and the, the Spin Doctors were real big at that point. 
And I would read about these bands, and they would, you know, and I got I got into a bunch of them, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the news stories about them would reference the the Grateful Dead, and I you know started listening to the Dead kind of kind of through that in this weird backwards way. And in like an investigative, an investigative uh, roots sort of situation. Yeah, and you know, uh, bought I think pretty quickly bought Working Man's Dead and American Beauty at like a garage sale on on vinyl. This is all all, all on vinyl. Um, and 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 fell in love with those albums. You know, not not that hard to do that. And and started buying Grateful Dead related magazines actually um the, I, I like I said a girl from Long Island which I didn't really realize at the time and not even until didn't even really put it together until later how how densely um Long Island is packed with deadheads compared to the rest of the country and because of that um the record store in, in my town only stocked one magazine for sale and that one magazine was relics <laughs> so yeah. i you know would buy you know would buy relics at this this place in in my town and and started just from kind of reading relics kind of put together the fact that people that there were there's this whole kind of tape culture going on where where people were, were exchanging these tapes so i started uh trading tapes uh through the like the the ads in Relics, and I, I would pick up like Dupree's Diamond News, and there's another one called Unbroken Chain, which was out of Virginia, um, and built up like this kind of little tape collection, and got on, got online as well through like CompuServe, and you know built up like just started getting shows from the '60s and and '70s, and discovering that that really sort of magical glowing early Grateful Dead sound. Um, and there was, uh, you know, the, the Grateful Dead Hour was on every week, and WBAI um, had great, you know, especially then, this great public radio, or non-commercial radio station had an amazing reach and, and broadcast out to, to Long Island perfectly clearly. And every week they would have, they had this show, still have the show, it's still on, called Morning Dew, where they would broadcast entire dead sets, like a whole hour and a half soundboard with like a, you know, a break at the 45 minute mark. So people at home could, could flip their cassettes and, <laughs> and, and, you know, they would have these marathons where they would play, you know, like, you know, it was a fundraising marathon. So they would play like six or seven hours of dead in like 45 minute increments. And then, you know, at the side flip, they would come on and, you know, you know, ask for, ask for more money to support right. the radio station. So I would, you know, I was, a you know, I was 15 or something and, I would stay up all night in, in my parents' living room just taping taping this stuff off the radio and, and yeah. built up this great little collection and you know, some of those some of those shows are, are still ones I listen to frequently, but I've I've certainly upgraded since then. Um but then in all this was all happening probably like nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety four, ninety five, ninety four, I guess, because in nineteen ninety four I saw two Grateful Dead shows. I'd been listening to them a bunch, and I was like, I guess I was six, fifteen or sixteen. I'm, I'm, I'm not great with math. Um, and I mid nineties, mid teens. Yeah, yeah. And, and, there you and go. With, with, mid nine. It was in the mid, early to mid nineties, and you were in your uh, mid teens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And went to see the Dead at 
uh, NASA Coliseum in March 94, March 23rd, 94 was my first show. And having had listened to tapes for, you know, kind of almost two years at that point, I kind of thought the show really wasn't that good. And I was not that into it. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. Like, I had a great time. Like, it was it was super, super fun. But the music just didn't quite grab me the same way that the, those tapes did. There was, there was just something, there was like a, there's something like a, there's something going on that I, I couldn't put my finger on as a teenager yet. Other than that, it wasn't the same thing as what was going on on these tapes that, that had really enchanted me. Um, oh, and looking back in retrospect, yeah. there's so many reasons. <laughs> well, exactly. It, right? I mean, now now looking back at the size of the crowd, what was happening on the East Coast, Jerry's health, you know, like you know, there's there's you know, as opposed to you know the fresh psychedelic induced young bucks in San Francisco, right. you know, in the early seventies. Yeah, exactly. Such a and, totally know, different scene. And I saw another show in the fall and had the same reaction. Like, you know, this is fun, but it's you know, and I love the Grateful Dead, but I'm not sure this is really connecting with me. And, and they were both like they were both amazing experiences, separate from the music. Like I wasn't, you know, I was a mid-teen. I hadn't really gotten into to psychedelics at that point, or you know, or even or even smoking pot. But just the the experience of being in these giant rooms with with the dead, and more importantly, the Deadheads was was kind of what was really the last the lasting impression it made on me was like my main memory of those shows was that the crowd was singing along louder than the band. Like, and, and, you know, my second show was at the, was at Madison square garden. And I got to experience a shakedown street opener at Madison square garden. And I definitely, that, that, that moment of, of them, you know, the doom chord dropping in at the beginning is something that's still very vivid with me and sort of, you know, feeling, feeling the room erupt. But those two shows, you know, I didn't, hop on the, the, the bus in the way that some people did and, you know, go out, go out and see tons of shows like, you know, nine, summer 95 rolled around and I was like, mm, maybe I'll see him next year or something. And I was still trading tapes. It wasn't like I was not into, I had lost my taste for any of that, but, but fish was around and, and I was into lots of other music besides just, just jammy stuff. I was way into um, the band Sonic Youth, uh, oh, who, yeah. I, who I still love. And they were kind of my doorway into kind of, experimental uh, improvisation. So I was kind of discovering all this stuff at, at the same time as a teenager, and the dead were just sort of like uh, part of that, and a, and a really important part of that, for sure, because, they right. you know, they plugged into all these all these different, these other things, like they were sort of a path into sort of old, old American folk music, but they also connected to experimental music in the same way that, that, that Sonic Youth did, or at least, the, you know, the 60s and 70s dead stuff did for me. Um, but that was, that was sort of the, the, the beginning for me. And then at some, you know, got, got really fully online at some point around there and, and started connecting with more, more deadheads, uh, reading Skeleton Key by, uh, Steve Silberman and David Schenk was, was actually a, a really influential deadhead moment for me. That was, that was maybe when, I, that was, I think when I like normalized as a deadhead was reading that book, um, which I can still quote kind of chapter and verse like there are definitely passages out of skeleton key that i know by heart and that book really kind of like defines what what the grateful dead world was and is for me and i i highly highly recommend that 
track okay. track. No, track. I, I have not read that. Oh, it's 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 so fun. It's like it's just an A to Z dictionary of deadhead of the dead and deadhead culture. So you get you get all these like entries about what was going on on tour and kind of like tour slang and like you know. Oh, that's so like an entry for like the Gorby blots, you know, like these, you know, the, you know, this acid with, you know, uh, with Gorbachev on them and, you know, and like, you know, but also things like song abbreviations and you know, sure. My favorite, the vernaculars my that you kind of pick up like a, like, Oh, like, like, I got like a key. That's, that's yeah. uh, a and and skeleton key. And also like a real sensibility like that. My, my, my favorite entry in the whole book is, uh, you know, it's all alphabetized, so it's like a dictionary. So my favorite entry is under, under Y, and the entry is for your hands. And the, the definition just says, look at them. Weird, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so there's this real, like, that's the, it's like there's, there, there's a sense of humor about it and kind of this absurdity that, that I think I really connected to as well. Um, and, 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 you know, just find, finding other people with that, with that sense of humor or that, you know, that same bent on the world. Well, in those first books that you read, I mean, I, for me, I think back, I had two books, and uh, and it's so cool because I've recently met and actually had lunch with Geraldine Brandeis when I was out in California. We had Crepes on Hate Street, which is, well, I mean, again, like, so cool, right, to just, you know, get to meet all these people that were you know, part of my teenage years and formative years and, and her book, The Family Album. Oh, yeah. Which I remember getting. And her and I talked and they it came out in a, it was like Christmas 89 and it was like a really big, you know, Christmas Hanukkah gift. And I'm like, I was one of the people, you know, who, who got it for Hanukkah that year. Like I uh, I remember that book and um, and the Grateful Dead Handbook was the other one that, that I go back to my years that had like the, um, had the 100 Dead songs and had like some quizzes and oh. had the Fire on the Mountain story and... Uh, yeah, I, I can I can go back and like visualize it all like written in and then written over and then raced and um, it's so fun because it's it's yeah it just is that your tapestry. Yeah, I def I didn't have the the handbook. I definitely had the family album and still have it. I'm looking at it right now on my my dead bookshelf. Um, but yeah, that was that was an, that was an entry point. And there were you know so many great books around the dead and connected to the dead. I, you know, pretty quickly after I got into the dead, I wound up, you know, reading uh, Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which, you know, is, is incredible in its own right. Now, you know, my dad had also given me a copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So the dead, like, kind of connect pretty Permeated. swiftly into sort of the literary world around them in a way that really emphasized for me that they they weren't just a rock band, that they were sort of there are these tendrils that that connect to all these other practices and and forms of creativity and parts of culture or whatever and and that that was that was um an important lesson as well was sort of knowing that there were there was more than just these guys on stage playing instruments that it was part of this bigger this bigger thing well, let's uh, that's uh, let's play some music because yeah. now I wanna I wanna hear I wanna hear a little music and talking about them. We we well we I always say this. You <laughs> chose. <laughs> I didn't choose anything. We chose, and you sent to me um, the Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh Wandering Man demo. Yeah, 
you tell 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 everyone a little bit about this pick, and then we're going to go in and play it. Sure, I'll I'll you know say that one of the things that I love about the Grateful Dead is just how much of it there is, and I mean that both in terms of just just real quantity, but also variety of stuff, and the fact that here we are, fifty years later, you know, from from when they started, and there's still kind of new pieces that are surfacing and, and new new discoveries to be made and tapes that nobody's heard before. And this tape is one that surfaced last year, um, um, kind of over the summer. There were sort of a, a, a bunch of rehearsal tapes that, that, that floated into the BitTorrent universe, um, including this one that there's no real accurate dating, but my, my hunch um, based on some some of the sort of just what it sounds like and 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 the context of it is that it was recorded in in L.A. in early 1966 when the dead moved down there with Owsley Stanley and moved into a house together where where Owsley was tabbing up acid you know up in the attic and the dead were rehearsing downstairs with kind of his early the early sound system that he had built for them. And he had also bought them. He'd also bought uh, a tape machine to record them, um, which is the source of a lot of the early uh, live dead recordings that we have, including the one that that, that just got released as a bonus disc um, with the new with the reissue of the self titled album. There's a, a tape from '66, so we have this tape machine, and this session is basically Phil and Jerry messing around with the tape machine and, and writing the song. Like there's, you know, I, I edited down the, the one I sent you, but you can hear them messing around with like the placement of the microphone and, and sort of just sort of figuring out how to, how to use this thing is as a new piece of gear. Um, and actually I think Bobby is, 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 is on this track as well, but I think he's sitting a little bit further away from the microphone. So you can only kind of like hear his voice in, in a, in a ghostly way. Um, but this is a song that, as far as I know, the dead, you know, never played live, um, or if they did, doesn't exist on any of the tapes that, that, um, that, that, that currently circulate. And it's this, just this really beautiful little tune that, you know, I, I don't, I guess, I'm guessing Phil and Jerry wrote it. I, I Googled around for the lyrics and, and couldn't find anything indicating that it was a cover song. So this is kind of like an early, one of their really earliest attempts at songwriting. And I think Phil's voice sounds really sweet in this way that he never quite tapped into in that same way um, mm-hmm. again. And it's just, you know, another, another side of the dead. And I love that, you know, I've been listening to the dead for, for, you know, 20 years, more than 20 years at this point and fairly obsessively at that, <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've, so to stumble upon a new gem is, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, mind blowing. Like, you know, I, yeah, I, like, no, absolutely. I have never heard this one again. So this is, a, a, you know, listeners to Stranger Stopping Strangers, we will blow your mind again because I, you probably have never heard this and, uh, and I will make this, uh, this little hidden gem companion only guys who can listen to the music over and over. And uh, and I might even send you a link if somebody emails me directly <laughs> to it if you want something solo. So well, that's I'm no, I'm excited that you're sharing this. It's so cool. Because yeah. the music should be shared, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. it's uh, and I guess let, you know, I, I I like sort of broadening the definition of what the Grateful Dead were. Obviously, people trade tons and tons of live tapes and you know and live recordings, and I'm you know certainly no stranger to that. Um, but there's there's so much other stuff that they've created 
you know, that, that, that doesn't fall into the category of just like, here's a, you know, here's a sweet jam from a live show. Um, cause they, you know, they were real, they were serious musicians and their, their output was, was, was really wide and wild. And it's, uh, it's, it's cool to kind of like reconsider the context of some of those things. Cause the context of the Grateful Dead is so tied up with this, this, this giant band that toured the country for years to have this like little moment of, of just like Jerry and Phil and, and I think Bobby's sitting around in a living room is like, a, to me, this whole, you know, it makes me think about the dead in, in lots of different ways in, in new ways. So that was, that's well, some of the appeal a, for me. Absolutely. And you know, what comes to mind to me is in, 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 in our, in this last bit of conversation, it's the ultimate juxtaposition to Shakedown at Madison square garden. You yeah. Know? Cause like totally. for a minute there, I was like, well, maybe we should just play Shakedown from Madison square garden. Like I was going to like offer that up. And then like, we kept talking and now <laughs> like, I was like, well, let's mix it up and let's just put that in. And now like in full circle, like them in 1966 in Los Angeles, you know, discovering their roots. It is, I mean, cause they're, it's, it's, it's everything all together, but, um, but I'd much, I'm, I'm thrilled that you picked this and shared this because I think that the overall listeners, you know, they, they show up for the Madison Square Garden Shakedown Street, but this is something new. So it, 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 it gives more breadth and depth and texture. So yeah. I think that's, I think that's what you were going for. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> that's my interpretation of it. I mean, the, yeah, the Grateful Dead that I really value is kind of, there's, there's an intimacy to it that I think maybe got lost somewhat a little bit later on, but I think is really very, you know, present here. Uh, well, let's go into it, and then we will back with a, a little more chat and a couple more very specially selected songs. Oh, wonder man's gonna find you someday. You'll meet him. Thank you. 
listening to that little 1966 jam and um, I mean there's just there's so many things I want to ask you and talk about and have you share um, so I you know tell me so you're writing I was I was looking at some of the uh, your bios and again like Rolling Stone and Relics and Pitchfork and you're actively writing about so many different topics you know on a regular basis. So tell, tell everyone a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, I've been a full-time freelance writer for, I guess, 15 years at this point, more than that, um, and was writing pretty obsessively kind of since the first time I really figured out how to string words together on paper in, like, first or second grade or something. Like, I would started making zines on, on a Xerox machine and, and, you know, wrote, you know, wrote and edited the school paper and, you know, writing has always been, you know, my main obsession along with music. So it was kind of a fairly natural thing to start writing about both of those things together. Um, and yeah, I think part, partly influenced in, in a way by the dead, um, kind of got into writing about all, all kinds of different, different stuff over the years. Um, you know, certainly I, I do write a lot about music and I write about psychedelics. Um, but I also write about, you know, technology and, and occasionally politics and, and, and sort of the, the connection points between, between all of these things and just kind of follow what I think are interesting stories that I don't think anybody else is really covering. That's kind of, a, that's kind of a, a rule of thumb for, for when I'm writing is trying to find, trying to find the stories that, that, that I don't have to compete with other writers to get. Like, I don't want to be writing, you know, the same story that, you know, is appearing in, in 20 other ways and in, in 20 other 
publications, though, though sometimes I do get assignments that, that end up being, being like that. But mainly what interests me is kind of finding these stories that nobody else is telling. And that's, can be, it can lead me into, into all kinds of d- different places, you know, like, you know, I, I guess one, you know, interviewing a guy who's, who I find really interesting, who still makes his living selling used CDs. That's, you know, something that, that fascinates me. Or I started writing for Wired recently. And like one thing that, that I've been fascinated about, fascinated with for years is, is voice transcription and why as a writer, why isn't there, you know, an application where I can just, you know, feed in an interview recording and have the computer spit out like a transcription. Like why, why do I have to listen back and type everything up? They don't have that. I mean, they, they have that on my recording on my cell phone. Well, but right? they have, they have one voice <laughs> recording. You can, okay. you can dictate, but you can't, ha- if you fed at this recording of the two of us talking into that, most of it would come out as gibberish um, because that, that is kind of the missing piece. And so I kind of like interviewed a bunch of people who've been developing voice transcription technology at Microsoft and, and, and elsewhere and just sort of gave myself a crash course in that. Um, and just sort of kind of keep following, following what seems, seems interesting to me. Um, and continuing to write about the dead and continuing to write about music, um, as well. But, um, yeah, just sort of, just sort of follow, following, following, <laughs> following well, the path of you, most resistance, I guess, in well, some I ways. Well, I think if you bring up, if you bring out, like, things that you're interested in when it comes to, like, sharing concepts and ideas, then, then you become less of a talking head, no pun intended, so to speak, and an editorial slant on a common topic, and you're more offering, you know, information on a topic that is, that wouldn't otherwise, you know what I mean, be, be, be offered. So you become less editorial. And that's for, for stories that multiple people are covering on things. I think that's kind of the, the, as a reader, that's one of the biggest issues I have with, you know, again, you thinking about politics is the first to come to mind. Like you're getting one person's perspective. And if you are coming up with interesting, different things, you're, you know, you're exposing different ideas. Yeah. And that's certainly, that's certainly part of it. You know, there's, you know, lots and lots of people writing about music and it's, you know, there's, you know, part of, you know, Part of writing about music is kind of this notion of like reviewing albums and, and well, it's and, becoming a critic. You know, it doesn't sound like you're looking to be a critic. You want to be more of a storyteller than a critic. Yeah, well, it's at, at some point that became less interesting to me. Um, sure. Where it was more like, for me, it was kind of more like a practical matter. It was like there's so much music out there and like just infinite amounts of stuff to discover in every era, but also just infinite amounts of music just existing in this current present moment that to spend my time writing about music that I don't like or don't find interesting is really just like a kind of a waste of, of, of time in that sense. Um, for me, like I, that's not what I got into this for. Like that's not, you know, my, you know, that's not where my passion is. My passion is, finding finding new stuff that I didn't know about before and is really, really cool. And that's – so I've kind of at, at sort of a certain point became less interested – yeah, sort of like what you were saying, less interested in, in, in criticism in that traditional this is good, this is bad kind of way and more interested in – in, hey, check this out. Yeah, check this out. Find, <laughs> Look find, what I learned. Check this out. This is so cool. Did you know this? You know, like I'm going I'm to expose something new out there. Yeah, some, something like that. And that's sort of, um, 
yeah, that, that that kind of applies to to a lot of the different projects that I that I have. Well, right on. Well, let's let's play another song, and then I want to ask you a couple more questions about like what we think is going on like now, you know, in the future. So <laughs> let's because uh, it's just you know the 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 wheel keeps on spinning. Um, so the next song that you picked out is uh, another one I have not heard, <laughs> which I was uh, really thrilled and delighted to hear, and it's uh, it's called a beautiful jam. So tell everyone a little bit about. That. Yeah, so this is this is probably the most I guess traditional of, of the picks I'm going to make. It's an excerpt from uh, the Dead at the Capitol Theater, uh, the first night of their I think it was. This, Six-night run, a long, the long run in February 71, where they debuted, debuted tons of new songs. And uh, this act, this jam actually comes out of the first ever version of Warfrat. Uh, it was from uh, Dark Star into Warfrat, back into Dark Star. And this piece of music is sort of the the improvised piece in between Warfrat and, and the second part of Dark Star. Um, and it was released on the So Many Roads box set um, a bunch of years ago, which I think absolutely holds up as like a really great, you know, fairly <laughs> relatively brief five disc introduction to the dead. Um, but what really makes this jam special, and I only figured this out, this part out a few years after falling in love with the piece of music by itself is that um, it features Ned Lajan on clavichord uh, who most deadheads, if they know who he is at all, uh, Know Ned as Phil Lesh's uh, collaborator and partner on Sea Stones, which is this sort of you know noisy avant-garde album uh, that got put out in 1975 during the Dead's hiatus year. And Phil and Ned would play um, Sea Stone sets at during kind of the before the second set at Dead shows uh, throughout 1974 during the Wall of Sound era. And those sets were really noisy and really, you know, really combative um, and not for everybody. I happen to love that stuff, but I, I can totally, you know, I can I can see how that's not a thing that 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 a lot that some deadheads are into. Um, and because of that, I think a lot of people really associate Ned with this, you know, crazy, you know, crazy, you know, almost violent sometimes music. Um but Ned also played with the Dead a whole bunch of other times in those years, and oftentimes he would be playing keyboards on the really gorgeous songs. He would come out for Dark Star, and he would come out for the other one, and he would play this really consonant, beautiful music, like this, like for example, this beautiful jam. Um, and when I wrote my book, I got to spend some time with Ned in California, and he's really kind of an he's an amazing guy and a really smart guy. And you know, he told me that. You know, Sea Stones and the noisy stuff is very much part of him, but that, in a lot of ways, was what Phil wanted to do. That was that was sort of how Phil wanted to express himself by making this 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 avant garde music. And for Ned, he was just as into making pretty stuff and and sort of engaging in in sort of the sort of the more more melodic things. So the beautiful jam, I think, is 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 an example of of Ned Ned's part in the dead world and, and, and sort of quiet little influence on the dead world um, where he would come out on stage and they would sort of veer into these more like intimate little dialogues. And I, I just love the way the clavichord fits in, fits in with this, this stuff. It's really kind of unlike any other piece of thematic dead improv that, that they ever did. It's just sort of this one time only 
like um, little piece of music that they made, and I I love it. Well, it's very beautiful, and uh, I'm excited to share it. And it is very melodic and sweet and, you know, ethereal. Yeah. So um, definitely not what I would uh, associate with, like, headbanging, you know, like very ethereal and, and, and cool. Well, let's uh, – I'm going to play this, and uh, and then we will come back, and we've got – we'll chat a little more, and we've got two more songs to uh, to, to share with you. So everybody enjoy. Thank you. 
back from listening to uh, the beautiful jam, literally a beautiful jam, and uh, and I want to talk a little bit about you know like what's going on now. And I mean, there's been such, I mean, there's such a great vibrant music scene. You live in New York, and uh, you and I first connected um, via Twitter around the Dead and Company show. Somehow we were both going to be there, and we ended up like messaging and talking. So. Oh, tell me what your thoughts are on, uh, you know, what's what's unfolding for uh, the newer generations um, with the music. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, it's just, I mean, there's, there's always a vibrant music scene. That's, you know, that's, you know, one of this, you know, this great ongoing things for the last half century or longer in this country. Um, and one thing that I've really been excited about over the last few years is it just seems like kind of these boundaries that were, you know, kind of always imaginary are kind of beginning to really fall away. When I was in when I was in high school and college, there's this extremely sharp divide between kind of the deadhead world and like the indie rock world or, or sort of the avant-garde world or these these, these other parts of, of the music scene where I felt a little conflicted. Like or you know, I was I was way into the Grateful Dead, but I was also way like I said before, way into these bands like, you know, Sonic Youth and kind of the sort of the the, the spinoffs and kind of the, the the world that was going on in New York and and sort of people you know make experimenting with four track tapes and 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 doing things that were sort of more lo fi um and it seemed like the people who that I knew that really liked that kind of music were not as in were you know oftentimes sort of scorned the dead and sort of were not into sort of the sort of the hippier jammier world and I think the last, you know, the last, last little while, I think those lines have really fallen away where now they're, we're now, it's not at all uncommon to sort of cross paths with people who are, who are into all of that stuff. And I think more importantly, the way that's manifesting is kind of all this music that sort of falls in between those two categories. Um, if you even want to categorize those things where there's these musicians who kind of, draw a lot from, you know, say the Velvet Underground and 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 bands like that, but also aren't afraid to sort of engage in sort of Americana and and kind of and and longer jams, you know. I mean, the Velvet Underground certainly jammed too, but that was not not a hip thing for a long time. Um but yeah, there's there's, you know, uh, there's this whole new wave of guitarists of people like uh William Tyler and Steve Gunn and Chris Forsyth um and Riley Walker and it you know the list just sort of keeps keeps going where the music that they make is kind of not really in in one category or the other um and I think that's you know that that's certainly like the little corner of the music world that I'm in but my impression is that it that those boundaries are kind of falling you know kind of between any two <laughs> any two genres that were separated in the eighties or nineties, you know, of, of music, it's now, you know, it's now kind of this one, one flowing thing. And I, you know, I certainly would, would think that the sort of the, the internet and social media and just sort of the, 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 the spread of, of music, the, the digital spread of music and access to music, I think probably has a lot to do with that. Just that there's, you know, all this stuff is 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 easy to get to easy to get to now and 
It, well, and you can try something without really having to fully commit to it as much. Yeah, you, know? well, you, I mean, you can you can you can download a song. You can do a Spotify list. You can you can check out you know singles a lot easier now than you could before when it was you know really were you gonna spend twelve dollars or fifteen dollars on a on an album or on a tape and then you had all the tracks. You know, it's I mean yeah the way music is being presented and listened to is um is 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 definitely different now. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that the same holds true for the dead, where, you know, in the 80s or 90s, if you wanted to to hear a dead tape, if you wanted to hear, you know, 827.72 or 214.70 or, you know, one of these legendary dead shows, the way that you had to do that was to pretty much, you had to know a deadhead. You had to know somebody who had the tapes. And now right. that's that and that and that added immeasurably to the culture, to the deadhead culture, for the the fact that it was kind of internalized. It was an exclusive exclusivity, you know. It was more of like a private club in that way. Yeah, it was, and, it was like a and I think ownership of music. Yeah, and that that really gave it a lot of its power. But I think one of the great things that's happened in the last bunch of years is that that music has then become accessible, where you don't have to go through that mediation to get the tape. You can just go directly, you know, you can go to archive.org and listen to it or you go to YouTube or, or, or something. And the fact that you can then, you can bypass and you don't have to be a member of, of the subculture or the counterculture, I think has been a way that, that a doorway into the music for a lot of people. And it, and it's sort of, I think led to this acceptance kind of over the last, over the last decade that the dead really were and are this incredibly huge force in American music. I think, I think people cut, I think there was, there, I think there was a lot of denial about that for a while. Well, admit maybe misconception too, people not knowing really what it is. And I know that like if I'm introducing people to the dead, I mean, there's definitely certain things that I find for entry level getting to know. I mean, actually my, my, my daughter, my kids, I mean, I'm a mom, I've got a seven-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. And so, you know, of course, as a good parent, I'm trying to constantly, you know, drill music into their head. And then they, you know, they like their, they like some other stuff. And I think as long as you love music, you love music. And that's important. But I, I want them to love my music. Because um, <laughs> that's just, you know, like, that's just human nature. And, uh, but there's certain songs that I'll like go through that are, um, that are, you know, you, you, you can get to, again, on a spot, on a Spotify list, on org, you know, listen to this one, listen to that one, listen to this one and, and get people on board based on what's the easiest digest, digestation, you know, yeah. um, my favorite game that I play with my daughter now, I will plug with this. It's so cute. And, and again, I think she does it more just to humor me. I don't want to be any like, Oh, I'm the perfect mom, you know, situation here on the podcast, but she did ask to play it last night because she knows it makes me happy. Is I'll, I'll go through a playlist and we'll guess who's singing. So we'll do the Bob song and the Jerry song, you know, <laughs> and um, and it's and that's very rewarding and fun, you know, when you go through and and say, you know, and then a Brent song or, or a Phil song will come on and 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 to her credit, she kind of like kind of looks confused and you know. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, no, you don't know that one, you know, but uh, but it's but the accessibility, again, to your point, it makes it so much easier to be able to, you know, turn people on to specific things and and, and feed them. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a mother bird, you know, <laughs> a mother bird chewing up the food and spitting it into her mouth, you know, with like, I'll throw you an easy one, you know, like there's a, I don't know. 
a war frat for Jerry or a victim of the, or the crime for Bob, you know, like, like there's some, like, okay, there's no fucking this one up, kid. Come right, on, get out. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, you, I get, you get a Brenton and, or you get like a Jack Straw and she just gets really confused. <laughs> I'm like, well, they're all singing. You know? I don't know. Sorry, honey, about that one. Well, let's, well, we have two more songs, so let's, let's do another song, then let's come back and uh, we'll do a little sign-off goodbye, and then, uh, and then I'll leave it with the last song. Sure. So the last two, because I definitely want to play all of these songs, um, was a, um, where we're going chronological, is a Jerry Garcia um, song where he's on the piano yes. and the vocals, yeah. which is kind, of, is kind of amazing. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, this is yeah. from, uh, from the All Good Things uh, box set, which is a really super cool box set of uh, the Jerry Garcia, of Garcia's solo albums with, with lots of outtakes and, and, and demos and things. Um, and this is unusual even among that. Uh, where this is record, this is recorded. Uh, I think it was like maybe possibly even the first thing recorded at uh, Front Street at Club Front, which was the dead sort of studio rehearsal space. Um, the shape that they call the uh, Oven San Rafael. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, exactly. And um, this was, I think, setting up for the sessions for Cats Under the Stars. Uh, and this is a cover of Warren Zevon's Accidentally Like a Martyr. And Jerry's playing uh, Rhodes. He's playing piano. He's playing the keyboard. And Steve Parrish, his roadie, his, is, playing, is playing drums. And Bob Matthews uh, is – wait, is it Bob Matthews or, or Harry Poppick? One, one of the sound guys – one of the sound crew is playing bass. I think it's Bob Matthews. Um, and there's a ton of reasons I love this. Um, one, it's just a beautiful interpretation of this song. You know, I like Warren Zevon okay, and I and I love this song, but Zevon's version is kind of really filled with bluster. And this is, you know, I, I keep using this word, but it's really intimate, and it's it's that very sort of quiet Garcia mode that I love so much, and it's it's just this great interpretation of it. And I love the fact that Jerry's playing piano, which is something he didn't do very often. There's, you know... There's like one show from 1970 where he plays piano on like To Lay Me Down or something like that. And he plays a little piano on uh, his first solo record. And, you know, there were a couple other scattered instances of it. Um, And the dead are so often associated with being sort of, you know, these crazy musician virtuosos, you know, the the, the double drumming, the fact that, you know, Phil Lesh is an avant-garde composer before he was in the dead, you know, Bob Weir playing all these weird, like, you know, sort of chord shapes. And I really like that this is kind of this, this primitive script back version of that. There's nothing flashy, you know, nobody takes a guitar solo. There's no like crazy drum fills. It's really just serving the song in this very pure, simple way. It's just, it's a performance. And, and I, I just, I love it. It's great. (laughs) It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite late night, late night listens. And it's just, you know, Garcia just sounds so vulnerable in a way that, you know, he doesn't often, I think. And I, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with the lyric. 
Yeah, no, it's really beautiful, and it is it was the first time that I have ever heard Jerry on the piano, so it was, um, I listened to it, and then I was, you know, reading up on it, and I was like, oh my, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 learn something new every day, totally cool, yeah, I have it from August of 77, yeah, yeah. so that is, uh, and Front Street, I uh, I got a chance to, uh, to, to pop by there when I was out at Terrapin, um, I, I the, did the uh, same thing, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, and and we met a guy. I we're kind of running long, but I got to tell you this little quick story because it's such a cool story, and I want to do like a little shout out to Two Sticks. Um, we met, and then I saw him at the Sweetwater over Christmas. It's one of those like cool, serendipitous everything you know happens around you know that way. Um, but he was like standing outside smoking a joint and told you know told me that Front Street was around the corner and we should check it out. And I we were like kind of looking to walk over there. And it wasn't going to happen. And so we're leaving, and he has, he has a, a couple of, um, you know, devices to help him walk. And he said they, if we gave him a ride back to his apartment, he would uh, swing us by, uh, me and my, you know, one of my oldest friends that lives in the area. So he said they used to be called Shakedown Street, that that was the original shakedown, that the, the, the feds would be shaken down on either side at uh, 420 Front Street. So, And then my same friend from California and I were at the Sweetwater seeing Steve Kamuk at the 30th and he was there and he was um yeah he was there and he was tripping he's like you know it was the coolest like, it was the coolest thing like running into him in the very front you know with nice. uh yeah no it was uh I just again one of those like really random you know hey yeah and also <laughs> no, like, uh if, if you're ever back over there kind of near front street as well is uh uh fifth and lincoln which was the dad's office it was like it's a little house that they got I think they got it in like 70 or 71 or something like that. I'm not totally sure, but that was their, that was the main Grateful Dead office from then in the early seventies, all the way until after they, you know, after Jerry died, they, they didn't move, they didn't move out until then. And then just down the block, I can't remember if it was on fifth or Lincoln was like the, the ticketing office where, you know, yeah, the, I remember the, the PO box. Cause you'd send the letters, you'd send your, um, you know, for the lottery tickets and then, you know, you would decorate the envelopes and, uh, and uh, the PO box in San Rafael—that was a uh, yeah. So, uh, so the, the, their you know their offices were on this nice little cute street, and then Front Street, where the rehearsal space was, is you know over in kind of the sketchier, seedier part of town, mm-hmm. <laughs> where yeah, the, 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 the cover warehouse. the cover of Shakedown Street, the album, sort of looks like the area where where Front Street is. If uh, <laughs> if, if anyone's looking for a visual. Yeah, no, very warehousey and cool. And uh, well, maybe I'll put a picture of it up uh, when I when I promote this podcast. Uh, I always get a couple of pictures. Sure. And uh, I'll, put, I'll put one of us up there that uh, that two sticks took of us. <laughs> we were out there, super fun. Well, let's play. Um, so here we are back there and uh, full circle. So we are going to play the song, and then we're going to come back and do a little goodbye, and then we got one more song we'll do as the send off because. Um, I could just talk to you forever, but um, I'm sure you have things to do, and uh, yeah, we will, all things, good things come to an end. So everyone enjoy, and then we'll be right back.
sun refused to shine. Ever thought that I would be so dearly for what was already mine? Such a long, long time. We in bad love, shadow love, random love, and abandoned love. Accidentally, like a martyr. The hurt gets worse, and the heart gets harder. We Gets worse, heart gets harder. 
Well, we are back and gonna say a little goodbye, and uh, and then we're gonna we're gonna play one last song. But uh, I'm gonna play this as uh, you know after we are done talking. So we will we will say our goodbyes and then um, and then play this. And I am going to put a couple links onto the website because I'm sure everybody would like to know more about where they can read Jesse's. Um, you have that great link that you sent me that has like all of your favorites on jessiegero.com. So I'll put that on. Cool. That'd be great. And yeah, I will put that on and uh, a link to the book and uh and uh yeah, so everyone can uh, can read more and um there's again there's just there's so much good stuff. So um so I just thank you so much for coming on and talking and sharing and um I hope we get to meet in person. I'm sure we will at some point yeah, both totally. being up here in the northeast and uh good music coming along and um hopefully be able to catch a catch a song together yeah that would be sweet that would be super fun so let's uh, so let's sign off with a a really um a really special version of box of rain so tell everyone about this and then uh we'll play this and and uh say goodbye yeah so i i came across this version of box of rain I think around the time I started hosting a radio show, I host a radio show every week on WFMU, which is a freeform radio station uh, here in the New York area where it's non-commercial. I can, I can play pretty much whatever I want. Um, and this is a, it's a Robert Hunter solo record called Jack of Roses where he plays a bunch of dead tunes, which is something he doesn't usually do on his solo albums. Um, and I, I really love Robert Hunter solo stuff or not, maybe not every single last bit of it. Um, but Tales of the Great Rum Runners, his first solo, solo album uh, produced with uh, Garcia is really, really beautiful. And actually, lately, I've been um, very into this compilation that um, somebody somebody made called Gravity's Rainbow, which you can find on archive.org, which is a collection of all of his, all of the original songs that he debuted and played on tour in the years after The Dead ended. And there's some really great kind of lost Hunter tunes there. Um, but this is the first song on Jack of Roses. It's his version of Box of Rain. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's Box of Rain. You can tell it's Box of Rain and it's not, but it doesn't, it's not the dead version and it's not the dead arrangement. And I, I just really love what it brings to it. And his voice doesn't. It's kind of haunting, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's almost got like a haunting edge to it. Like it's, 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 it's sort of, um, there's a darkness around it yeah Would his voice can some can be a little bit of an acquired taste for some deadheads but <laughs> maybe that's but, but but i do think on this album and this this song specifically there's a the, this sweetness that kind of comes through that i think it, it it's sort of a little bit less gruff than than i think he than he than he can be on other on other recordings um, and I think that that puts across this song in a in a in a real way. I mean, after all, you know, he's the he's the he's the guy who wrote these words, and that and it's you know you can so often think about you can so often associate the dead lyrics with with Garcia because he's singing them, or you know, or 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 Phil or Bobby or whoever whoever's singing them. But it's it's always to me it's always a really poignant reminder to 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 think about the fact that that it was Robert Hunter who wrote them, and that he's got his his way of phrasing these things and obviously, you know, his own meanings for these songs that I'm, 
that I'm sure are, you know, completely personal and beyond anything we can, you know, we can really reckon with. But sort of just the fact that you can hear his interpretation of, of, of how, of how this stuff, of how these words and melodies fit together is, is, is pretty special. And, and I, I, this is, this version of Box of Rain has been a staple on like, you know, mix, mix, mix CDs and, and playlists of mine for years. Um, I don't think it's probably on Spotify or anything like that. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, it's great. It's great stuff. And the rest, the rest of Jack of Roses is worth uh, hearing too if you can track it down. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I mean, he's, you know, it, it's poetry. I mean, ultimately, I was talking about poetry with a friend the other day and how I don't really follow much poetry. And I'm like, well, but lyrics, you know, which is poetry. And, and he is, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, he's, he's written some of the most beautiful stuff. So let's, uh, so I'm going to play this and then, um, and then that, that will, will kind of sign off with this. So again, thank you so much and everybody enjoy and, uh, and, uh, we'll, we'll catch you soon. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Walking to spend some money, it's your way through death.
listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.